0: Comic-Con. That massive San Diego convention that spawned an international franchise for fans of sci-fi and fantasy comics, films, television, and genre books began in 1970 in the basement of a San Diego hotel. The year before, the singular writer Ursula K. Le Guin had already published the best science fiction novel of the year, The Left Hand of Darkness, a book not about ray guns or rocket ships, but about other planets, other cultures, other sexualities. As Comic-Con begins yet another flashy fest, one of alternative fiction's true masters, author of children's books, poetry, novels, and nonfiction, is shaping her forthcoming book, Words Are My Matter. Worlds, too, are her subject matter. The deep currents of politics, race, culture, ecology, sexuality... Our own earthly conundrums played out and spun out on alternate worlds. Le Guin's parents were the remarkable Berkeley anthropologists and ethnologists Alfred and Theodora Kroeber, a couple as influential in the field of anthropology as on the imagination of their daughter and the planets and the people of her creation. When you see... The popularity of events like Comic Con in television and films with alternative fiction—it seems like it's—it's it's mainstream. It's not a genre apart anymore.
1: Right. The the the, the barrier finally fell. Yeah. Why
0: why uh, do you think it's done that?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I will take a little credit because <laughs> it seems like I spent about forty years saying, "Why isn't imaginative literature literature? Why, why do you?" You keep saying, you know, this stuff is for kids and all that. There's so much good imaginative literature being written that to deny that it was literature I think began to seem ridiculous to to most people, to readers and to critics and to teachers. There's still some holdouts. You know, some people just don't like imaginative literature. They just want realism and, and nonfiction. I think what has brought imaginative fiction, imaginative literature back into central centrality uh, is that so much of it is very good and uh, so much of it is kind of needed because of the fact that it sort of opens doors to, to other possibilities and that it gives the imagination exercise and imagination is a very important human faculty, and it needs to be exercised.
0: It almost seems as if the walls we raise in literature were like the walls that we've raised in gender. You're either one thing or another.
1: It seems, doesn't it, that human beings kind of want things to be all very clearly black and white that way, uh, but that the only way you can really live fully is to live in the Great, big, gray area, where it's all mixed and uncertain.
0: But that's scary for a lot of people.
1: It's scary for everybody. Uncertainty is very scary.
0: There's a usefulness to imaginative fiction that maybe it's easier to deal with reality if you don't look it directly in the face.
1: What does Emily Dickinson say? Tell all the truth but tell it slant? It's a a beautiful line. It it kind of describes the way a lot of imaginative literature takes the world very seriously, but doesn't uh, describe it realistically uh, in order to describe it better.
0: Especially maybe for adolescents and young adults, it's a way of coping with a real world that's very puzzling to them.
1: I think a lot of adolescents, the world comes at them and says, this is the way I am and you can't anything and you can't do anything about it, which is not entirely true, but it does seem that way. And through imaginative fiction, they can live in alternative worlds and find out that they are possible.
0: As we're having these national discussions about transgender issues, that your book, The Left Hand of Darkness, really set a tone for saying you don't have to be one thing or another.
1: And That that is exactly where the the, the the social and psychological usefulness of imaginative fiction can can operate. I pulled a trick in my Earthsea books. I Almost all the people are people of color, including the hero. But you don't realize I don't say anything about it for quite a while. Uh, and all uh, fantasy novels at that point were all white. Everybody was pure lily white. And it was just a way of kind of almost almost tricking the reader into identifying with young Sparrowhawk and then finding out that
0: he was not a white man. Okay, it is a kind of trick, but it's a useful one. And and it worked. It it's a way of laying a trap for people with their own assumptions, I suppose.
1: That's it, precisely. Kind of you you, you you're gonna insist that the world is this way, well here's what happens
0: to you. As I remember, the television version of Earthsea didn't do a very good job with that. I said a young man who could be one of the great wizards of Earthsea if the wind blow true. <laughs> yeah, could we just not talk about that? <laughs> it's so horrible. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll put, that, put that aside. Now, your your work ranges over these cultures and creations, Um uh, and and it there has to have been from your family from your father your mother um, ethnologist anthropologist something that you absorbed something that caught your attention that said I am not just of this time this moment this body this place
1: well I feel very strongly that I am of this body and this place and this time but you're right I there was <laughs> something in the air my father breathed as an anthropologist. And the people he knew, the people who came to the house, and the things they talked about, you could say, I, I grew up in a house where all the doors were open. Uh, there just weren't a lot of shut doors and no locked ones. And that that does something to a kid's mind. It, it gives him a freedom and a, and a kind of security in the world. Uh, okay, Pe- people are different. They're all kinds of different people. Isn't that interesting?
0: You know, instead of, isn't that horrible? And certainly anyone who reads your books may find strangeness in the place, the setting, but so much familiarity in the characters.
1: Yeah, well, people do seem to be people wherever they are, whatever they look like, uh, left of darkness. In a sense, I kind of tried an experiment to see if you took gender away from people for most of the month, would they still be, uh, you know, human? And yeah, they did.
0: They do. How does it feel to create worlds, to create populations? It's, <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> powerful.
1: It's tremendous fun. It, it's hard work. Uh, that's why I can't do it anymore. I'm too old. I haven't got the strength to, uh, to create the whole populations anymore. But I certainly enjoyed doing it very much.
0: How did it make you feel, besides the fun part?
1: Well, sure, you are the creator and ruler and god of your little invented world. But uh, after all, I... You only go partly insane when you're writing a novel. Uh, and part of you remembers that, after all, it is just a novel. It is not the world. It is your little, uh, what Tolkien called, your little sub-creation. And you can do with it what you will within limits because you find that this world has its own rules and you have to obey them. The world you created... Uh, Everything you say about it establishes some facts about it, and then you have to stick to them. So it's a kind of interplay between the creator and the created all the time.
0: Is it hard to close the book literally on those worlds you've created, saying goodbye to them when you're done writing about them?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. finishing a novel can be awful, very depressing. and And I was always absolutely certain that I would never write another, that I was done, that was it. It was all gone. And then somehow another
0: one would first start shimmering. What do you think made that change to bring the kind of writing that you do, alternative fiction, science fiction, into the mainstream, can you characterize in general your your readers and what they tell you about what your work means to them
1: they are people who of a certain courage because when I first started writing particularly they were reading a kind of fiction that was frowned upon and that uh, most college English departments didn't admit existed people who read imaginative fiction very often most often start reading it as kids and adolescents And they just stick with it, and they won't be shamed out of it by being told that, oh, that's just for children, and, you know, Tolkien writes for the nursery and so on. They just say, oh, nonsense, it's not true, and go on reading what they want to read. So they're people of courage, and they're very, very generous. I must say that the fan letters I get are just lovely, from age five on up.
0: Really? Age five?
1: They get some help from mom and Papa, you know. (laughs) but they send me pictures and the pictures are wonderful
0: does this mean that your books are now on syllabi in high school and college classes
1: oh yeah oh yeah well actually uh, high school teachers have been putting science fiction and fantasy uh has been teaching it for years kind of sometimes i think a little bit surreptitiously um uh, and sometimes with a lot of resistance from uh Fundamentalist parents who's, who think that every imaginative, every fantasy is, is witchcraft and evil, you know. But uh, high school teachers, after all, have to communicate with high school students. And high school students like fantasy and science fiction. They find their things that they need. And, they, and they, will, they will read it, whether they're told to or not.
0: You made a speech in 2014 when you won the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contributions to American Letters. I think you said the speech has more hits than a cat video, which is saying something. You spoke about your concern about the state of American literature, that it's getting sold down the river, and your concerns about the online use of content for free, that it could be depriving writers of their livelihoods. Well,
1: my concerns are not so much the state of literature, which I think is quite healthy, but the state of publishing. And the fact that the publishers have been taken over by mega corporations, which are not interested in publishing books, they are interested in making money. And it's all bottom line. And literature does not happen on the bottom line. And the capitulation of publishers to their own sales department. Sacrificing editors to the, the what the uh, sales department says is going to sell and so on. Sacrificing writers to uh, how well their last book did. Oh, it's all pretty sick. Uh, capitalism and art do not really get on together. And uh, I just was putting in a, a protest. Because uh, I was there in New York all my publishers were there, and uh, uh, Amazon had a whole table there, and so on. And I just want to say that the way you are handling and selling books is not the right way to do it. You're, you're degrading the art. Uh, stop doing it.
0: You've also been concerned about this digitizing of books.
1: That's hitting one part of it that is only part of the problem. I am very concerned about the breaking copyright a, a writer. Cannot be independent without copyright. The copyright is only about a hundred years old, or a little older in some places. And there is a there is a fairly strong, concerted capitalist movement to break it. In other words, to make artists, writers, th- th- that they cannot be independent anymore. They will have to find sponsors, or sell via advertising, and so on. Uh, and go go find a rich man who will publish their books for them. And, uh, I think it's very important that, that our government uh, understand what's happening to, to copyright and strengthen copyright rather than letting it get continually weakened. Well, <laughs> but how do these people think a writer's going to live? Where, where, where does the peanut butter come from? <laughs> sure, you know, I, could, I could give away all my writing and put my work in, in common domain, but then how would I make a living? Uh, everybody has to eat, and writers are workers just like everybody else.
0: Reading your books makes me think of one common issue in alternative fiction, imaginative fiction. It's the role of women. And even if you watch a Star Trek movie nowadays, the men are still wearing long pants, 2,000 years in the future, and long sleeves, and women are still in sleeveless short dresses. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> well, you
1: know, a film, Hollywood, TV conservative and kind of reactionary they're so timid and it's, it's, it's kind of depressing oh uh, people who know science fiction only through movies don't know they haven't any idea what it is uh, they just know
0: what movies are <laughs> i love movies but gee. have you ever been invited to comic-con invited uh yeah years ago
1: I never went to very many, even the science fiction conventions, the big cons. That's just not my scene. I'm too introverted.
0: Because I have an image of you being carried in shoulder high on a sedan chair to the cheering throngs.
1: Ugh. I bet when you're in a sedan chair, you get seasick.
0: Thank you again. Okay, thank you. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered and edited by Todd G. Levin. The music is from Gustav Holst's The Planets, performed by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and the London Symphony Orchestra. The scene is from the Sci-Fi Channel's 2004 Earthsea miniseries, I Am Pat Morrison.